0: I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much, much more. Welcome to another Chinchilla Squeaks with me, Christian Chiller, probably the second to last for the year. I think I will do one next week and it's probably going to be something of a wrap-up of the year and what a strange year it has been but i'll save that for next week what do i have for you this week i have a few things i have been working on a few things from other people the usual kind of um show format i suppose Uh, the usual kind of vibe i have some things on writing i have a little on history and i have a little on technology let's begin with technology First, this is an article on CSS Tricks from Michelle Barker. Uh, This is a series that CSS Tricks have been uh, running, um, I think the past couple of months, called What is the One Thing People Can Do to Make Their Website Better? And Michelle proposes that we could reduce your website's environmental impact with a carbon budget. Now, this is a topic that has come up a few times, which I find quite interesting because I think, you know, when we drive... Well, I don't drive, but you know what I mean. When we get a plane, when we eat meat, when we do all sorts of things, we're kind of somewhat semi-conscious of like the 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 carbon impact of that activity. And sometimes these weird abstract devices that we spend all the time, all our day on, uh, we may think about maybe the power going into the computer we're using and where that's coming from. But actually, like ev- almost everything we do. Uh, especially online, which is interacting with other people's computers, the cloud has an impact too. you know, all those big data centers, every time you just pointlessly load an algorithm on a website um, on you know Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or whatever. Um, every time you do a Google search, every time you browse Amazon for no particular reason, et cetera et etc, cetera, etc, cetera, all of that has some kind of impact somewhere because it's running in a server somewhere. And in uh, this article, Michelle quotes an article from the BBC in 2020, saying the intent accounts for 3.7% of carbon emissions worldwide and rising. I will admit I thought it would be higher. I suppose that shows that it's relatively efficient, but it does put it on a level with the entire air travel industry. Um... Which is interesting, because you could probably argue that more people are doing it more of the time, uh, and I guess that includes multiple devices as well, so it's kind of interesting that it i don 't want to <laughs> i don 't want to demean the point here of saying it it could be worse, i suppose uh, I thought it was um but it's still quite a lot, and in some respects, and this is the point of the article it 's kind of easier to fix in some ways, and some of this is a lot of the way down to a lot of the way that you build a website. Um, it's very easy these days just to throw a lot of frameworks and extra kind of crud into a web page that isn't really needed and that all has a little bit of an impact. And you could probably argue that even reducing the load of a page by half a percent, multiply that by a lot, it adds up. Um, it adds up to a reasonable amount. And the 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 the... the f- <laughs> One of the most ironic aspects of this whole article is she specifically cites the website for um, the recent COP26 conference, um, and that it came in initially at 6.4 megabytes of transfer data, about average, um, but still quite high. And actually that uh, there's a company or there's a project called the Web Carbon Calculator that said this is 94% dirtier. I feel an odd choice of word, but you kind of get the point. Um, 94% dirtier than many other web pages tested by the Web Carbon Calculator. Um, This, of course, was shamed (laughs) to the creators of the website, and they brought it down um, to, let's just find the numbers. Ah, it used to be 8.8 megabytes. So they brought it down by 2 megabytes um, so they responded. But it's interesting because I think a lot of people don't really think about this, and it makes me suddenly wonder, like all of these ads that people put in, the JavaScript, the images, the movies that you just kind of throw in willy-nilly, and you sort of forget they can all add up, and it gets to a point where maybe you should think about, is it worth adding XYZ into a web page? Um, what is the actual impact of all that? I also wonder if you use ad blockers and things like that I mean, obviously that helps you in other ways but does it help in this way or is it already too late like what where where are the carbon emissions happening i think is the interesting thing that came in my mind do they happen on the client side the server side both so if i have an ad blocker on my client side am i reducing carbon emissions slightly or not i don't know that's kind of some of the questions i had i'd be interested to to dig a bit more into, and there's a there's a few links on this page that I might actually dig more into. I find this kind of interesting uh, mm. <laughs> as a topic and kind of increasingly necessary, I suppose. So there's a whole bunch of really good links in this article as well um, to to dig into a bit more because I think it's actually an interesting topic and I like these kind of practical articles where it's not just... This is a problem, but it's actually here's what you can do about it. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of resources to go further. And I think it's actually quite an interesting cause kind of up there with accessibility for web pages as well. Next, um, this is something that I have hit, a concept I've hit uh, quite a few times. And I found this, I'm not quite sure how I found it, but quite an interesting article on uh, Dev.2 from someone who calls themselves Aruna ArunaX. Um, all about ABSAC... <laughs> all about abstract syntax trees. Um, They're used in many, many, many things to sort of represent code in an abstract way, including editors and um, dev tools and autocompletes and all sorts of things like that. And I have encountered them because I often um, am using them as part of like a markdown export into HTML and JSON and things like that. I have encountered them. The article also covers a lot of other aspects of 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 kind of abstracting languages including a comparison to a different concept which has the curious um, name of a CPT, a concrete past tree that produces more efficient code when compiling but is more verbose than an AST and um, possibly has a lot of unintended information. Um, uh, no, unneeded, sorry, unnecessary information. Uh, according to the writer, anyway. um, And then it goes into a whole other path, and I was reading about this recently, and I can't quite remember why, but this refers back to Alan Turing, uh, what he called the halting problem. Um, Alan Turing proved that it is impossible to write code that can examine another piece of code and its input and tell whether or not it will terminate. Um, And... This is kind of where ASTs sort of prove that practically, I suppose. Um, and, yeah, uh, but this kind of semantic analysis of code is something that's a very interesting field. I find the semantic analysis of language generally interesting, human languages and computing languages. Uh, computing languages are far easier in some respects. In some, uh, I've got to be careful here, semantically are easier. In complexity, can be more complex. Human languages are probably simpler in operation, but more complex in semantics or more subtle. I have no evidence to support any of that, but it's kind of an interesting um, thought in some ways. <laughs> sort of abstract, abstract syntax tree of human language. I'm sure that's being done. But anyway, there's an interesting article that got me thinking about a whole bunch of things and it's a nice jumping off point to all sorts of other places and... Thank you very much for for writing it. Um, Aruna, I guess, is your name? (laughs) And a couple of things from me I'm just going to put in here because they're mostly technical. First, I wrote something actually on my Medium blog. I'm kind of experimenting with where I put my personal blogs at the moment. And this was uh, my – I've actually been hinting about it the past couple of weeks – my experience is migrating between two Macs without using Time Machine and using a bunch of different tools instead. And in this case, Homebrew Bundle. Uh, Homebrew is pretty well known as a kind of Mac OS and Linux package manager. And Bundle basically lets you create kind of a dependency file of whatever you're managing with Homebrew. And then you can obviously run that file on another machine and get everything back again. Um it also wraps MAS, which is does something similar, but works uh, installing applications from the Mac App Store, which has some issues every now and then, mostly because of the Mac App Store, but still works well most of the time. And also another tool called MacUp that lets you, I guess, it kind of moves all of your various preferences and configuration files from a bunch of different places into one folder that you can then locate in Dropbox, version control, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And combined with that, I've done a few of my own um, kind of sim-linking of configuration files from other tools that uh MacUp has no awareness of. Um, so I kind of have basically this one place where I can kind of recreate a lot of a machine from. And this blog post goes into the process, um, how it compares to Time Machine, some of the problems I discovered of both, some of the positives I discovered of both. And, uh, yeah... I don't think I'm going to give any more away here. I would like you to go off and and have a read, um, and and tell me what you think actually, and if you would which process you would take. I heard from the maintainer of uh, MacUp, who obviously supports their own tool and uses it. That doesn't surprise me. Um, but I'd be interested to hear how, especially on a Mac. You know, Macs are not necessarily designed around this kind of workflow. Other operating systems are, uh, and I'd be interested to hear people's feedback on on the process and, and what they would do uh, in the same instance i guess and next i did another uh hands-on stream a revisit of um what was called obs ninja and i covered that a few months ago but it's now called video ninja vdo ninja that is literally what it's called um I admit I going into it I thought maybe there was be some more features and things this tool kind of came out as an alternative to a tool called NDI a few uh, about a year or so ago NDI is a tool if you ever hear of professional podcasters and video makers complaining about Skype and wondering who still uses Skype they often do use it because mm, because It allows you to get a separate, clean audio and video feed into uh, mixed tools like Open Broadcast Studio and various others. But Skype is becoming more and more unreliable, or less and less reliable, I suppose, is a better way of putting it. Um, But people still have similar needs, and NDI in other tools, it's weirdly available for free in Skype, but in other tools it's usually quite expensive. Uh, And Video Ninja kind of provides a different alternative solution by creating kind of WebRTC, so browser-based feeds of audio and video that you can then bring into OBS or something like that. They have added a a few new features since I last tried it, and I um, gave it a whirl with uh, a guest joining me for that discovered a few issues here and there but it mostly still works in the same way it mostly works well i still have next to no use case for it unfortunately i mostly use a tool called restream for a lot of my videos it kind of lets me accomplish similar ish things or similar enough for my use cases anyway but i like the fact video ninja still is around i still am concerned where they host everything it is open source but i don't know where they host the video feeds that you are running and how they cover those costs, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, um, have a look at that. If that any of that made any sense to you, as it seems something that interests you. Now I'm going to go into my non-technical um, section. I'm going to firstly talk a little about the uh, writing, writing advice. Actually, this has come, I, I have been doing an improv class Uh, this uh, term, I I can't remember when I started, October, I think. Uh, And I've really been enjoying it, actually, uh, and I'm going to do another one next year. But one thing that was brought up as a kind of principle of narrative and character is this rule of three uh, in writing, in comedy, in many, many things. And I started uh, reading about it and realised how much it is actually used, and so it was mentioned in the improv context in terms of a joke. You mention it once, twice, and then three times is the funniest, and then kind of everything else is downhill from there kind of concept. But then it's actually in many other things as well. Three Little Pigs, Three Billy Goats Gruff, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, the Three Musketeers, common phrases like Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, Stop, Look and Listen, Stop, Drop, Roll, "Veni, Vidi, Vici, Ex- uh, yeah, t- Turn On, Tune In, Drop Out etc 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 and you suddenly realize how widespread this concept is in so many things um and yeah i'm kind of still working through my novel um and then i kind of want to revisit it and and try and bake in lots of these aspects actually uh, not just this one but many others as well or almost using them as maybe in other ways influence for games for writing exercises, like looking at these traditional tropes and seeing where you can take them and what you can do with them. But it's fascinating when someone explains a rule to you and you think, oh, yeah, okay. And then you look into it and you think, wow, holy crap, this really is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. and I recommend you read into it because it's something you suddenly realise that it is very widespread. And I wonder why... I remember learning um, around UX principles of seven plus or minus two, but three is a different one. Why does that resonate with us so much? And yeah, I don't know. I find it fascinating. And finally, getting a little bit weird places here. This is kind of history, history and religion. I uh, recently finally shut down my um, Evernote account. <laughs> Been talking about and thinking about doing it for a long time, um, largely. Because the the new Evernote application just became so bad. And um, I've been looking for alternatives. That will be a whole other blog post and video and something at some point soon. But I've been going through a lot of my old Evernote notes when I exported them and finding a whole bunch of things I hadn't looked at in a long time. And one was obviously some talk I went to a while ago um, around uh, early religions, proto-religions, religions in the Roman Empire, early Christianity. I'm not actually sure what the topic was. But uh, it led me down the path of two things. one was the Roman Emperor's oppression of uh, paganism and giving way to Christianity and just kind of how brutal that period was firstly to Christians then two pagans and uh, back and forth back and forth and just how it's been like that so much but then also into zoro I can't actually think how to pronounce this um, Zoroastrianism yes. <laughs> It's a faith, uh, still exists, I think. And I remember actually seeing a temple when I was last in Israel about 18 months ago. It was the last trip I did before everything shut down. Uh, And there is a temple there somewhere. I can't remember where it was, but we we saw it. And it's one of these very early faiths. And I think it hits me, A, because I find it fascinating when you get these small religions. and I just find there are some numbers in here somewhere on the wikipedia page um let me see 2003 no Uh, i'm trying to find i remember reading it somewhere uh about how many people still it's usually low thousands in most countries so globally ah here we go um in 2012 or 2018, it's listed as around 100,000 to 200,000 in the world, which I find fascinating because how these things keep going and why they keep going and how they maintain themselves in the modern world with so many other, I guess, uh, rivals to to not just religions, but outside of religion, things like that, and and how something survives so long. And then equally, like, back in those times, how many religions there were. I think even in these times when Christianity is spreading around the Western world, it's still only one of many other religions. And then what changes and when that the others almost just get completely wiped out. Um, Yeah, I always find uh, (laughs) that kind of period quite fascinating. I'm not a religious person, but I'm interested in religion as a historian, amateur historian in many ways and yeah it's it's. I don't know I almost kind of want to write a book about it but it gets me I don't know what like a fiction book but that gets me into sort of Umberto eco territory and that probably too academic and and too maybe I need to take the concept and put it into a different vehicle or, or something like that. <laughs> I don't know I can't think how else uh, I could do it but I find it interesting I don't know yep <laughs> this is my podcast I could talk about what I like <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrischinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter and find all of my writing, games, work and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind the scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.